Welcome to the Hilton Effect podcast series. This year marks Hilton's 100th anniversary and the Hilton Effect, as the authors define it, is the positive world-altering impact that Hilton has had and continues to have on billions of lives and thousands of communities around the globe. At the heart of Hilton's success stories are the thousands of dedicated team members who care deeply about providing the best hospitality experiences for guests across Hilton's thousands of hotels. I'm Yolanda Brown, and in this series, I will be interviewing inspirational team members from across Hilton's hotels and offices in Europe, Middle East and Africa to find out the secrets behind the award-winning Hilton teams and learn what motivates these teams to lead the way in hospitality for the next century. Now, today I am excited to be joined by Anthony Lynch, head concierge at the Hilton Kensington and former president of the Society of the Golden Keys, Great Britain. Welcome, Anthony. Hi, Yolanda. You well? I'm very, very well. Even better now. I'm going to learn the tricks of the trade in this podcast. (laughs) Um, Now, Anthony, the role of concierge is really special and really embodies the whole philosophy of hospitality. Can you explain a bit about what your role entails and how you feel it is so important? Well, we're the the guys and girls who just can't say no. So (laughs) no matter what the request, uh, as long as it's legal and moral, we have to find an answer. So even if we can't uh, directly fulfill the request, uh, we have to find a way to make sure that the guest is satisfied. But we're also the link between tourists and getting the facilities and needs and wants within the hotel. Yes. And also that they enjoy their time in our city, country, and of course, within the Hilton brand. And you started your career as a butler. Can you tell me how you began on this path and what your journey has been like getting to where you are today? So I'm actually a Kiwi, which Uh means I'm from New Zealand. New Zealand, yes. Um, So I... uh, when I finished school, I, was, uh, I, I wanted to be a personal trainer, of all things. That suits, yes. Yeah, yeah. but back then uh, they didn't really have the courses, so um, I fell into a hospitality course. So I got a diploma in hospitality and tourism management, right? Uh, which was great because I'm an active person and, you know, you're running around being a waiter or a barman or whatever. And the big thing at the time was to be working behind the bar instead of in front of it, spending it. Um, But I had great fun doing that. And then uh, driving one night and my parents had a discussion with their friends about uh, if they were to travel now that they were 40 and mortgages and kids and stuff, what would they do? And they were all like, oh, about six weeks, we'd want hotels, we'd want tours, this and that next thing. So I piped up and said, what would you have done if you were 20? Motorbikes, bungee jumping, <laughs> canyoning. It all was the fu- a different yeah. time, yeah, all, yeah. Yeah, all the fun <laughs> stuff. And uh, I went home and I rang a friend who was coming to London. I said, hey, I've got to come with you now because that sounds so much more fun. Yes. And the great thing was is because uh, I had the hospitality skills and I've been working as a barman and a waiter and stuff, traveling became very easy. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I worked in a couple of places in Sydney. So you could pick up a job wherever you went. Exactly. And, and the good thing is, is that you could go in, ask for a job. You could work that night. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that was very conducive to traveling. Yeah. So I did a bit of time in Sydney and then uh, made my way through to London. Mm. So my very first job was a butler at the um, Portrait Hotel, which is a little hotel in South Kensington. Sure. Didn't know anything. I was 20 years of age. 
it was a lot of fun. Yes. It was a lot of fun. Was it different going from sort of a bar role, a bit more laid back to a butler role? What was the adjustment there? The course that we do in New Zealand takes you right up to the highest level of service. Right. So the test for us, for our fine dining, we invite the the who's who of Christchurch, the city I'm from, and we lay out a meal as if it was being served for the Queen. Wow. And so adapting those skills into a role over here, it was reasonably easy to be fit. You had the skills already, yeah. yes, yeah. The thing was, I was just completely and utterly ignorant <laughs> and, <laughs> and innocent. In, the worst thing was true, innocent. True, true. So I came from a little city of 400,000 to a city of, well, back then 11 million. Wow. And the pace was so fast and people were very quick to... I'm going to say rip you off, knock you over. Well, of course, if, you, if you're not ahead yeah. of them, they'll, they'll take advantage. Yeah. yeah. So I felt very intimidated. And, of course, the older butlers didn't want to share their secrets and uh-huh. didn't want to do thing. So we bucked heads a little bit. But sure. a good personality always wins through. Always wins. Always yeah. saves the day. Yes. Or, or, or being six foot five. <laughs> I was going to let the podcast listeners know when you said yeah. you, you wanted to be a personal trainer. Six foot five, really, really strong. You would have been brilliant. Yeah. Well, for, for, I've been playing rugby for 41 years now. So there it is. <laughs> I now think I can look after sense. myself. Now yeah. it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So after getting that butler job, what happened next? How did you transition into Hilton? Well, I did that for a few months and then I went traveling and then I came back to London and I got a job as a porter, uh, not for Hilton yet. Uh-huh. And that's where I transitioned from uh, porter into concierge and uh, called up a friend who, funnily enough, had just got a job at the Kensington Hilton and said, let the boss know that, you know, or well, if anything turns up, let me know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he got me an interview with uh, the head concierge at the time, Terry Watts. And uh, I remember sitting there, and it wasn't much of an interview, but he said, you know, I hope you can give me six months over summer. Yeah. I'm sitting there going, I've got a trip planned in three months. You'll be <laughs> yeah. lucky, mate. But I like, don't hold these jobs for yeah. long. I'm, I've got to keep moving. You know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so in my head, three months. Yeah, now 21 years later, uh, uh, I'm still at the same property. Now, this, so, I think, yeah. sums up the Hilton effect for me. We're going to talk about that later. But yeah. everybody seems to say, you know, I, I took the job, but I'm still here. Years later, it still feels like the first day. Yeah, just, exactly. Just really loving the experience. Um, and you were also the president of the Society of Golden Keys of Great Britain. What is the Society of Golden Keys? Okay, so the Society of the Golden Keys is a world wide association for concierges. So there's over 4,000 members. We're in 45 countries around the world. One of the founding countries is Britain. The whole purpose of the society is for, and and how it was set up all those years ago, which was before Google and Twitter and uh, WhatsApp and all that sort of thing, was for concierges to network. Ah. Um, so in the current form, uh, you need to be a concierge for five years. I see. Uh, a working concierge with concierge in your title. Yeah. Uh, then you get nominated and seconded by a member who's been there for three years already. Then you go and you do a, uh, a an exam. 
um, which is uh, very challenging. Um, So when I did it, it was what was the best Italian restaurant in London. So it's about the knowledge that you you need to have. I see. But things have changed nowadays, as everything does. Yes. With the restaurant scene exploding and so many companies exploding on the the scene, we're much more behavioral questions now. So when was the last time you represented your hotel? Um, You know, if uh, I'm a traveler traveling on my own and I want to go somewhere and read my book and have an inexpensive of meal, what would you recommend? I see. So we want much more situational. It's all about how the concierge answers. Yes. A non-keys member, oh, there's a little Italian around the corner. <laughs> I've heard that before. That's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That's not a golden keys That's answer. That's not a golden keys answer. Our, uh, the guys who progress through the interview, uh, well, there's a lovely uh, restaurant around the corner called Edera. They have beautiful little banquets mm-hmm. where you can sit in the corner and the lighting is good for you to be able to see your book. Good. They don't play music because they want to keep it low key. Can I ring the restaurant and, and reserve you a place? That is a concierge. Sounds better, doesn't that it? That sounds yeah. way better, yes. So, And then once they pass their exam, they then their name goes to the membership and they can be blackballed. By one person. One person says, do you know what? I know this guy did this or did that. He's not welcome here. He's not in. But then if they don't, then they're in and uh, they become a member of the society. And their motto is service through friendship. Is that something that permeates through your work? A hundred percent. I mean, uh, we need to build relationships to start with within the hotel. Yes. You know, we need to be on best term basis with the housekeeping with the front office, with the engineering, everything like that, so that we can facilitate our guests' wants and needs as swiftly as possible. Yes. And then we need to be knowing everybody in the local area, in the community. Of course. Um, so that once again, you know, if we can get people into the a restaurant that is claiming to be sold out or that we can get a, a pharmacy to stay open a little bit longer to get something for a guest. Do and, you have that power? Yeah. That is fascinating. When you became head concierge and you would have seen and had certain requests up to then, I would have thought at that point, and, you know, being a part of um, the Golden Keys Great Britain, you would think nothing would surprise you. Mm -hmm. What lately has surprised you? Have you been surprised recently with a request? I'm a really pragmatic kind of a guy. Anything is possible. (laughs) Somebody said, okay, an example. Yes. Not so long ago, we had a, I had a young Californian couple. They came up about three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. and they were flying first thing in the morning. They'd seen on the street a British bulldog. Okay. And they loved dogs. They loved the idea of dogs. They wanted to buy a puppy, a British bulldog puppy. puppy. And this is the kicker. They wanted to take it on the plane with them, like you see in the movies, the the little poodles in the bag, and take it back to America with them in the morning. No documents could be sorted in that time. Ah, I tell you what, you might get that key. Ah. You might get that key, hey? And so, yeah, so my initial thoughts were documentation, this, that, the next thing, but uh, leave it with me. And so what we did is we there's a British Bulldog uh, Breeders Association sure. in London. So we called them, but we couldn't get through to them because a lot of these associations is somebody's mobile number. And yes. Things. So we rang the Battersea Dog Home. Brilliant, brilliant. 
on the off chance that maybe if you got a stray, you could just take it. But no, that doesn't work. <laughs> that's either. A, that's no, not that easy. No, they still need papers. Strays need papers. <laughs> strays why are they need called strays? Too, yeah. yeah. Um, and if they spend time at the Battersea Dog Home, why don't they have papers? Yes, Come on, really. absolutely. Uh, but anyway, they they confirmed our fears and things, and so it was then time to start thinking out of the box. Mm. So we called the British Bulldog uh, Breeders Association again and said, I don't suppose you have a branch in America, specifically California. Oh. And they do. <gasps> and they're affiliated. So he was able to give me the contact details. Yes. But also himself contact them in California. Yes. So that when the clients got back to California and contacted them, they were already prepared and the introductions had already been done. Very good. And then we were able to pass that information on to the clients. Yes. And in such a way that we're like, you know, they were thankful they couldn't take a dog because mm-hmm. what's a dog going to do for 10 <laughs> on, hours on, on the a plane? plane yeah. And, you know, are you going to know when it needs to they, a brand they, new yes. little puppy dog? <laughs> Doesn't, not, not airplane trained. Trained, there you go. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, once we you throw those little things into the conversation. You make your deal were, a bit sweeter. Yeah, they yeah. were thankful that they hadn't got one, but yes. very excited. And, yeah, they sent us photos a week later, and they had a little British bulldog oh. puppy. And, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And, Everybody happy. And do you think that there's a particular expectation around British hospitality versus other places in the world? A hundred percent. When I when I was doing my diploma, all our training videos were British training videos. Right. When I was working in Australia, because I had British experience, you know, I was taken straight in as a manager or um, or above. And so, yeah, de- the expectation of people when they come to England is Mm. that our service is amazing. It's becoming a bit more challenging now because British hospitality used to be quite stiff. Yes. And, you know, uh, upper class and and very yes ma'am, no ma'am, three Mm. bags full ma'am sort of thing. (laughs) And uh, the trends these days are a much more casual approach, get in front of that desk as much as possible. And it's strange because we wear a frock coat, three-piece suit. Yes, every day. Every day. And I wouldn't change that. Our uniforms have changed in the hotel are much more casual and everything. And my whole department wear, well, the porters wear waistcoat and tie. Yeah. They were told they could lose the tie for two weeks. They we want, wanted them back. They wanted them back because we feel proud of the yes. service that we're providing. And can you share any unforgettable moments that you've had during your career at Hilton? Yeah, for sure. So the, we have, a, in my younger days at, at the Kenston Hilton, we had a piano in the, in the entrance. Sure. And, uh, but the people playing it, their backs would be to the concierge desk. And uh, we tried to discourage people playing it because, as we know, 99% of people uh, have a, a, a much higher sense of uh, professionalism at playing the piano than <laughs> than is physically uh, natural. But uh, yeah, one day there was a, a blonde lady leaning against the table and there was a chap playing the piano. And I'm, I'm going to have to say that oh. he was playing pretty good. Okay. And he, was, he was doing some, some uh, Beatles re, uh, remeditions and a few other bits and pieces, but we'd been he told that people went piano. to play the piano. So uh, I went up to, from behind to the, the gentleman and I gently tapped him on the shoulder and I'm like, 
excuse me, sir, but uh, I'm going to have to ask. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry, Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> no, um, as you were. <laughs> Continue to serenade yeah. And uh, yes, he was serenading a, a, a young lady in our lobby. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd proceeded to go up there and told Sir Paul McCartney uh, that uh, his you playing skills just weren't appropriate for the, the Hilton lobby and that uh, he needed to sling his hook. <laughs> what was his reaction? Uh, well, luckily, I stopped myself from saying all of that. Uh-huh. And I, I, I recognised who it was. And, uh, and I, I took a, a professional discretion to just back up and keep very quiet. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Concierge 101. That's take it. note, That's everybody. It. Take That's note. It. Do you see the role of a concierge changing or do you think there will always be a need for the concierge? There will always be a need for a concierge. I am just as busy now as I was 25 years ago right. on my first desk, if not busier. The job role has changed. Yes. People want verification of what they've already researched. So they come and say, listen, I found these three restaurants. What do you know? Uh-huh. Or what do you recommend? People nowadays, uh, they're using technology, but they're still not trusting it because they're in a new city. Yes, of course. And so they they want somebody in a new city. You're the local. To hold their hand, to yeah. pat them on the back and go, it's okay. Yeah, you're going the right place. You've put in – because everything is – it's still data entry these days. It is. And so we are much more checking their information. We're giving them little tidbits. Yeah, you've got the right way to get there. But if you actually cut down this street, you'll see a famous bit of graffiti or there's a church that was was in this film. Yes. Uh, which you're going that way, so have a look at it. Or, you know, if someone is less able, Google's telling you to interchange here, but we know there's a lot of steps. Mm-hmm. Go two more stops, there's an elevator, less steps, and it's going to be easier for you. for you. That's what we're bringing to the table now. And on a day-to-day basis, you and your team must meet people from all sorts of different countries and backgrounds. How do you make sure that you're creating a welcome and inclusive environment for everyone when they enter your hotel? It's called a smile. Oh. It's easy. It's that simple. Yeah. It is literally that simple. That simple. A smile will, you know, open a thousand doors. I think genuine hospitality, open body language, a smile, a calm demeanor. And I think maybe the calm demeanor yes. is the thing that spans the nations yes and if you've got all of those things coming and you see people who, who are stressed uh from their travel yeah for one reason or another and they come up and they're a million miles an hour and you're like it's going to be okay <laughs> exhale uh, yeah <laughs> and you've got those open hands and you've got the smile and it's like it's all going to be okay. And you can see them physically you take a breath. shoulders yeah. go down. <laughs> shoulders go down. We're, we're in a Hilton. We're in a safe place. <laughs> you know, yes. we're, we're going to be looked after. And that's what our clients or our guests yeah. want. That's why they stay with us. Yeah. And you've made this whole job sound so appealing. Well, to someone like me anyway, I love speaking to people and meeting people. And, uh, and I like to smile. That's good. What advice would you give for somebody that's thinking of entering into the industry of hospitality? The thing that I, a lot of people, and you're alluding to it earlier, yes. that you like talking to people. Sure. 
I don't think that's the number one thing for entering the industry. Interesting. You've got to care for people. I've seen a lot of people who have interviewed and said, I love people, I love talking to people, but they were talking to people. Mm. They weren't good listeners. So I would suggest that if you feel that you're a good listener, if you're the one that your friends go to when you have problems because you can listen and because you're not necessarily putting your personality on them but listening to them, then you're a hospitality person. Right. But entering the industry, if you are a people person, if you are outgoing, you do like the social environment and everything like that, you like to be active, then hospitality is the one for you. Your job will never be the same day to day. You have the satisfaction of helping people to uh, help them enjoy their holidays, to facilitate their business, to, to whatever it is. If you enjoy doing that sort of stuff, then hospitality is for you. And you should just give it a go. Thrive is this great initiative that sort of gives that optimism and confidence and focus to team members. How do you thrive? For me, you know, as in all hospitality jobs, you work the hours and you work hard and everything. But I've always tried to play my sport. I've recently started a family and and got married, so make time for them. Good. For me personally, I've just always been busy. So it's not it's not really kind of making a mental choice. It's uh, just trying to fit everything in and making sure that I'm doing the things that I like yes. that make me happy because, strangely enough, I don't want to be defined by my job. Interesting. I want to be defined by the person that I am. And you all know, uh, have a really good interpretation of the Hilton effect. You see it in full effect every single day. What effect has working for Hilton had on your life? It's the whole Hilton package, really. And the hotels are so supportive of us to do what we do as well. Mm. Because technically, we're not a revenue generating department. True. But we're the feel good factor. Once again, we're having to step up to the mark and be more friendly and more engaging you know, I mean, that's the Hilton way. Gosh, it's been so refreshing to speak to you, Anthony, and to hear the journey, hear the ins and outs of the job. I will be applying. I, I think I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to use this smile to some good, for some good yeah, measure. Yeah, totally. And, um, but no, it's been really fascinating to speak to you. And thank you so much for all of your amazing service. Thank you very much. Now join us again for the next Hilton Effect podcast, where we'll be going from the concierge to the largest Hampton by Hilton Hotel in the world and interviewing the amazing woman at the helm who keeps it all running like clockwork. Clockwork.